Good morning. Open up your Bibles back to John chapter 3. Something different this morning from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, sort of. Page 888 in the Pew Bible. John 3, 22 through 24. At Bible study on Thursday night, we talked about identity, the all-important question, who am I? In our increasingly identity-obsessed culture, our goal was to allow Scripture to tell us who we are, to better identify ourselves as God identifies us. We don't find our identity inside of us, as the culture would teach today. We find it outside of us. Identity is not something that can be self-generated. It is something that is God-given. We do not define our identity. We receive our identity, and we find our true identity only in Christ. And it is all important that you know and remember and live in light of who you are. Well, I want to again talk about identity this morning, but instead of personal identity, I want to take this time to step back and focus a little bit on corporate identity. Who are we, Woodside Community Church? John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 are these sort of transitional verses. They are moving us from one scene or story to the next. They are a bridge between what we've just talked about and what we'll talk about next. And I want us to kind of pause at this bridge and do something differently this morning. I want to go on a bit of an excursus. I like that word. It just means that word means a more detailed discussion of a particular point, as well as a a bit of a digression from the main matter at hand. Or I'm going to use this as a, a bit of a digression for the purpose of a more detailed discussion. We almost always preach expositional sermons, working through a text of a scripture, verse by verse. What does this text say? Here's what the sermon is in light of the text. If this is your first Sunday with us, that means you have to come back next week for one of those normal sermons. But I want to do something a bit different and a bit more topical this morning. We just finished up three weeks in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And I may have preached from it a bit differently than you may have expected. I taught that when Jesus says you must be born again, he is also then necessarily saying that you are dead. If you need birth, you are dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And that deadness affects every aspect of your being, your thinking, your feeling, your willing, or what is known as total depravity. If we are dead, dead people don't choose. It must then be the living God that chooses those whom he is going to save. Everyone is dead. Tragically, not everyone is raised uh, to new life in the sovereign wisdom of God. Therefore, it must be God who is the one who chooses. This is what is referred to as unconditional election. If we are dead and God chooses whom he is going to save, then the means through which he must do that is the death-defeating, life-giving, substitutionary death of his son, which we saw John 3.16 is teaching is not given indiscriminately for everyone who ever lived in the same way, but specifically and uniquely for God's people. God, the death of Christ saves. That then is limited atonement or definite atonement. If we are dead and God must choose whom he is going to save and he sends his son to die for them and accomplish that salvation, then those for whom Christ dies will be raised to new life. God initiates. 
He brings a dead heart back to life. We will respond. Regeneration, God's initiative, precedes faith, our response. It's all his grace. That is his irresistible grace. And if we are dead and God does all of that to make us alive, then as we saw last week from Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which necessarily means that when God begins a good work in us, he will bring it to completion. And that is the perseverance of the saints. And so from John chapter 3, the passage that contains the most loved verse of Scripture on the most misunderstood love of God, I managed to preach, at least implicitly, all of the five points of Calvinism. Or as they are better known, the doctrines of grace, which are at the very heart of what we call Reformed theology. And if you look there at the front of your bulletin, on the front you'll see that we are a Baptist church. So it's a little bit confusing, let's be honest. There's a big name there in the Gothic font, and under it is Baptist in like a modern font within the parentheses. Um, church, one day we've got to figure that parentheses out. Uh, it's, it's strange. No one knows the name of our church. Uh, I get mailed to Woodside Baptist Church, Woodside Community Baptist Church, Woodside Baptist Community Church. None of those are correct. We are Woodside Community Church, open parentheses, Baptist close parentheses. That's the name. Uh, regardless, we're a Baptist church. So the theology that you are getting from this pulpit, whether it's me or Mike or Peter or Henry or VJ or any visitor that we would put in this pulpit is reformed and it is Baptist. And I've mentioned this before and I announced it officially at Bible study two weeks ago that it is our goal uh, to adopt this, the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith or the 1689 for short as the church's official statement of faith at our October business meeting. This is the historic summary of the Reformed Baptist faith over 330 years old. So we've got to teach on that a little bit. Why? Why do we want to do that? What does this thing teach? Why is this so important? I want to do a little bit of that uh, this morning. Plus, the church has very graciously given to me and my family some extended sabbatical time away, coming up here in only a couple of weeks. And while we're away, Mike and the men are going to be preaching through 1 Timothy, and they're going to be teaching through the book of Romans, both of which are theologically rich books, but then also directly connect that theology, that doctrine, to Christian living. So I want us to use those series to be more intentional about highlighting the doctrine of this confession. And then when we get back, well-rested in August, we'll be ready to teach a little bit more on this. Lord willing, adopt the confession then in October. I'm excited about that. So stepping back, for the last three weeks, I've been giving you intentionally Reformed theology from John chapter 3. Today, verses 22 through 24 are all about baptism. I want to shove those two together. And take this opportunity to define what we mean by Reformed Baptist. I am a Reformed Baptist. I would like us as a church to be more officially identified as a Reformed Baptist church. Okay, well, what does that mean? I need to explain that first. Young people, if you're pursuing courting, you need to have one of those DTRs, right? You need to have a defining the relationship. You need to be clear. You need to talk about these things. Think of this as a sort of DTR or a DTI, de defining the identity. Who are we? I've been using this term, Reformed and Baptist. Wait, let me make sure we're all on the same page and we understand what that means. So our outline is pretty easy this morning. We have two points. One, Reformed. Two, Baptist. 
What do those two things mean? Well, let me tell you what I believe based upon God's word. And I hope you'll pay attention. This is important. We try to really emphasize that theology matters. And it is a kindness to be clear about what we believe, about what I believe. I'm working to be more clear. Uh, My poor wife, when she married me, thought that I liked to dance. And she thought that I liked to talk a lot. She thought that I planned to live in North Carolina. And she thought that I wasn't planning to be a pastor. Uh, Whoops. All those were wrong. Um, I, I probably wasn't as honest as I should have been up front. Thankfully, she's abundantly patient and kind. But it is a kindness to be clear about what we believe and about who we are. So who are we? We are Reformed and we are Baptist. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's see. And, and why does this matter? Quite simply, because, God, because knowing God is eternal life. I'll never understand someone who says the theology and the doctrine no, doesn't matter. No, knowing God is eternal life. John 17, 3. The God of glory and grace. And that is what Reformed theology is all about. The glory of God and the grace of God. And there is nothing more fulfilling and more satisfying, more identifying than knowing God in his glory. There is nothing more important for your life than understanding and resting in God's grace. How well do you know the God whom knowing is eternal life? Right? Do you delight in him? Do you desire to know him more and more. That's what Reformed theology is all about, and that's what it can help you with. So let's see if we can glorify the God of grace while we seek to better understand the terms Reformed and Baptist, and to better clarify who we are and who we want to be. Some of this may be review for some of you, but it's just going to be good for all of us to come together, take a step back, make sure we're on the same page, lay out some of the important basics, and I hope and pray that you'll find something edifying in this. So I'm still going to read the whole text, all of John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, but I'm confessing up front that this is not going to be a very expositional sermon. We're going to come back and look in great detail at 25 through 30 next week. But we're going to touch on verse 30 and point 1. I'm going to try to kind of be slightly expositional, and then we'll touch briefly on verses 22 through 24 in point 2. And then we'll look at this in detail next week. But let me read for you God's word in John chapter 3 verses 22 through 30. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hear him, hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, I pray along with John um, that you would increase and that I would decrease. Father, I pray that this exercise would not be uh, merely 
uh, intellectual. I pray that it would not be merely about uh, putting forth a particular system of theology. I pray that it would be first and foremost about your glory. I pray that it would be about knowing you. I pray that my and, and our motives uh, behind emphasizing uh, good and right doctrine would be so that we can know you better, so that we can love you better, so that we can live for you better, um, doing all things for your glory. Um, Father, we need lots of help to do that. Um, I need lots of help to do that. Um, I pray now that you would help us in this time. Father, help us to focus, uh, help us to wake up and to listen, help us to be thankful uh, for your word and, and thankful that you speak to us through it. Father, thank you for the great privilege that it is to stand here and to teach and to preach your word. Uh, may, may I never treat that lightly. So I pray that you would help me speak truth, help me exist and preach to glorify and to magnify your grace. Father, we pray that you would uh, accomplish your goodwill um, through this time. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, point number one, uh, reformed. What does that mean? Yeah, it kind of means verse 27. John sums or summarizes it pretty well for us. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Uh, that's a pretty good summary of what I mean by reformed. Um, so let's ex unpack this and explain what I mean when I'm using that term. I was greatly impacted a few years ago by Martin Lloyd-Jones' classic work, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Right? If you struggle with joy or if you're prone to the blues, you should just read that book. But there's a particular line in that book that's kind of just lodged itself in my brain that I haven't been able to shake. Uh, Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, the most comfortable type of religion is always a vague religion, nebulous and uncertain, cluttered up with forms and ritual. The more vague and indefinite your religion, the more comfortable it is. But there is nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decisions. I think that's profound. Vague and indefinite. That, that's the name of the game when it comes to the current state of evangelical theology. We saw last week our culture's inconsistent obsession with this idea of this kind of whole life judgment free zone. Right? Who are you to judge? Judge not, lest you uh, be judged. Right? The cardinal crime of our culture is not just telling, but even believing that someone else is wrong. And this has made its way into the church. Therefore, we are hesitant to be specific. I was trying to figure out a church in the area and what they believed. I pulled up their website. They didn't even have a statement of faith. Right? That's just the name of the game. Let's not put anything out there that would maybe offend anyone. Let's not be clear. Um, we're hesitant because we don't want to cause offense. The more vague and indefinite we are, the more comfortable we all can be. But as Lloyd-Jones points out, there is nothing as uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand a response, that demand decisions. So let me emphasize that we're talking about life here. We are talking about eternal life. We are talking about the creator God himself and how we as sinful men and women can be right with him, can know him, uh, which is eternal life. Thus to fail to do that results in eternal death. Is this not then something about which we should strive to be as clear cut as possible? Who is this God? What has he done? How can we know him? Wouldn't clarity about this most important of things be a kindness? Right? That, that's our goal. That's what we want our motivation to be. So, who are we? Church. The theology that you are getting every Sunday from this pulpit is Reformed theology. What does that mean? Well, let's start simply with the word itself. To reform just means to change for the better. 
And then when you use kind of a capital R and you use it in the context of, of theological conversations, you are using it to refer back to the Reformation of the 16th century. Right? So to be reformed is first and foremost to in some way be rooted in and to be connected to that Reformation, that world-changing movement, as more and more people became aware of the need for reform within the Roman Catholic Church, some realized that the needed reform was so significant that it could not be accomplished from within the church. And then Rome itself increasingly made it clear that these protesters and their reform were not wanted within the church, and so they were put out of the church. So these protesters were the first Protestants, right? We are Protestants. That's where the name comes from. Men like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and, and so many others, often called reformers, kind of leading this great reformation 500 years ago. What was it about? What was at the heart of this protest against Rome? You could simplify things down as much as possible and argue that the reformation was about two main things. The reformation was about Two things. This is often summed up in what is referred to as the formal and the material principles of the Reformation. Those are fancy philosophical terms. Don't worry about them too much. A formal principle is about authority. It's about source. Says who? Right? Why do you believe what you believe? What's your authority? Um, what are you basing your beliefs upon? Formal principle, authority. Material principle is about the main thing. It's about the main idea. It's the central doctrine. First thing says who. Second thing says what. So what is the source of this Reformed theology? And then what is the main thing that this Reformed theology is about? Two things, two words, as simple as possible. Scripture and salvation. Scripture and salvation. The former principle or cause of the Reformation or the source behind it was the Scriptures. The Reformation was first and foremost a movement of reform back to the original Scriptures. Reformed theology is rooted in the claim that Scripture alone is our final authority for life and doctrine. The material principle, the central doctrine of contention was salvation or more specifically justification. Right, the reformers arguing that we contribute nothing to our justification, but that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And those kind of key ideas were eventually fleshed out and summarized in what came to be known as the five solas of the Reformation. Right? Sola is just a Latin word that means alone. Right, so we've talked about these five solas. We spent a whole series on them. We're running through and summarizing too quickly. But those five solas were sola scriptura, you know, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's the, kind of the sum of the Reformation. Putting it all together then, most simply, at a minimum, to be reformed means that our theology is rooted in this Reformation's recovery of the gospel. Putting those five solas together, we could summarize it. We believe that according to scripture alone, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's reformed theology. And it is those alones that are critically important. Right? Rome would absolutely affirm and agree that according to Scripture, salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ, to the glory of God. But it is the five alones that distinguish 
us. It's not just scripture and something else, or councils, or, or popes, or, or whatever. It's scripture alone that is our ultimate and final authority. Salvation is not, it's not, it's not in part by grace. It's not grace and something else. It's grace alone. No additions. It's not just through faith and maybe something else, but it's through faith alone, nothing else. It's not Christ plus anything else, but Christ alone. And it's not to God's glory, but only and alone to God's glory. So those alones are important and critical qualifiers. But today, increasingly, they aren't just important for distinguishing Reformed theology from the teaching of Rome. They're increasingly important for distinguishing Reformed theology from the theology of other Protestants who implicitly end up denying that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And so if it is a kindness to be clear, if clarity is charity, we want to go out of our way to be clear on what we mean when we use these terms that many will use but mean different things by them. So if we've laid out now generally what, that it means to be, that, mean, that being reformed means to be rooted in the theology of the Reformation, summarized in the five solas of that Reformation, let me now lay out more specifically what I mean when I use this term. When I self-identify as reformed, I mean three things. I want you to jot these down and chew on these and think on them, and then I want all the emails and all the questions later uh, that you have. I mean three things when I say that I'm reformed. I mean to be reformed is to be Calvinistic, it is to be covenantal, and it is to be confessional. This isn't original uh, with me. To be reformed is to be Calvinistic, is to be covenantal, and it's to be confessional. That's what I am confessing when I am using that term. Let me run through those three things very quickly. Uh, first, to be reformed necessarily means to be Calvinistic. Uh, I am a Calvinist, clearly. I'm a Calvinist. I'm not bothered by the term. I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't care about the term too much. But terms and titles help to clarify. Right? We need clarification. So terms and titles help. And when we use that term, Calvinism, we are talking primarily about soteriology. Remember that fancy word, soter, just means salvation, to save. So we're talking about the doctrine of salvation. How does God save? And church, come on, there is nothing more important than this question. Scripture is clear. None is righteous. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Wouldn't we then want to be very, very careful and clear? on how that eternal death problem can be solved. If I am seriously physically sick, then I want the best physicians who know the most about my condition, and then I want to learn from them everything that I can about that condition, and then I want to put myself entirely in the hands of those most capable to cure my condition. Likewise, if I am not just seriously spiritually sick, but entirely spiritually dead, which is what scripture says, then I want the great physician who knows the most about my condition. I want to learn from him everything that I can about that condition. And then I want to put myself entirely in the hands of the only one who is capable to cure my condition. That's what we're talking about with Calvinism. We summarize the seriousness of that condition and the only cure for that condition for what is often referred to as the five points of Calvinism. These are woven throughout all the sermons that we preach, but particularly they have been through these last three on John chapter 3. What's our problem? Church, total depravity. 
is what Scripture says. That's the first point. We are dead, spiritually dead, and thus totally depraved. Our sin affects every aspect of our being. It blinds us to the things of God. We are not righteous. We are not good. We do not understand. We do not seek for God. That sounds kind of negative. That's Romans chapter 3. Right? That's just what Romans 3 says. That's our problem. And if our problem is deadness, Ephesians 2, 1, that means then that the solution must come entirely from outside of us. If your identity, according to Scripture, is spiritual deadness, obviously then you need to find your identity in something outside of you. So if we are dead, that means that God must make us alive. So the first uh, point is our total depravity. That's our problem. The next four points unpack God's solution. Right? Unconditional election. God chooses whom he will save. Not us. How could we? We've already established point one. We are dead. Right? God is not coming to a neutral, uh, living world, choosing amongst his children. Scripture says he's coming to an evil, dead world that has entirely rejected him. And he so kindly and graciously chooses to save some, though none deserve it. The question should not be, why aren't all saved? The question should be, why are any saved? None of us deserve it. None can do it. None can choose it. God must do. God must choose. Right? That's the second point, unconditional election. Well, how can God save dead sinners? Well, it's only by dealing with our sin and our death problem. How does he do that? Through the substitutionary death of his son. We deserve death. Christ comes to die in our place. Good news, church. That death actually saves. It actually accomplishes its purpose. It atones. Jesus didn't die to make salvation possible, but to make it actual. His death actually saves, which means that Christ did not die for all. He died for his people. Scripture, Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, the great shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But that's point three. That's limited atonement or better named definite atonement. If Christ has done that for those who are his, this gracious act then uh, means that they will be saved. They will be born again. They will respond in repentance and faith. God, God does not fail in what he intends. This is point number four. This is God's irresistible grace. It works. God does it. God does not and cannot fail. And then point number five, because this whole process is God's work and he does not fail. Because it is he who begins a good work in us he will bring it to completion. He will bring us all the way through to the end. And this is the final one. Perseverance of the saints, or better yet, preservation of the saints. God preserves us so that we persevere to the end. And those are very quickly and insufficiently the five points of Calvinism, right? sometimes summarized with the TULIP acronym. Or again, if you're scared of the Calvinism word, that's fine. Those are the doctrines of grace. And again, Church, there's nothing more important for you in your experience of the Christian life that you know and understand and rest and rejoice in the grace of God. That's what Calvinism is all about. The doctrines of grace can help you know God in his amazing grace. That's what we mean when we use the term Calvinism. We mean that God is God and that there is no other. We mean that God is the king. He is absolutely sovereign in all things. And that absolute sovereignty logically then includes sovereignty in salvation. 
So Calvinism simply asserts that it is God who initiates, accomplishes, sustains, and completes the salvation of his people. Or as Peter said a couple of weeks ago in Bible study, it's simply Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we mean. Why do we want to emphasize this? Why do we, as your pastors, think this is so important? Again, because God is so important. Because he is the most important thing. If, if we had to pick one of the solas to summarize the whole thing, it would have to be the last one. Soli Deo Gloria. That's Calvinism. Right? To the glory of God alone. That's what we're trying to proclaim. Uh, God's glory. His, remember in Hebrew, it's, it's kabod. I can't pronounce it well. It, the, the word means weightiness. It means significance. We talked a lot about first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 at prayer with Lydia Tuesday night. This light and momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Glory is weightiness. It's significance. So God, as the all-glorious one, is the weightiest, most significant one. And think of the sun. Because of its great weight, our solar system revolves entirely around it. Its weight, its glory, holds everything in place and in order. Say that Pluto got upset that it had been demoted from planet to dwarf planet, and it somehow supplanted and replaced the sun. What would happen? Chaos. Death. All the other planets would go spinning off into space and would freeze and die. Because Pluto does not have the weight, it does not have the glory to hold everything else in revolution around it. And so just like our solar system, you were created to revolve and exist around the weightiest thing, the most glorious person, God himself. And things then necessarily fall apart when you try to supplant him and put anything else at the center. Right? We are unashamed and we are joyful Calvinists because it is the only system of theology that truly treats God as the sun and the center. The only system that logically and biblically emphasizes and magnifies the glory of the all-sovereign, all-saving God. You were created for him. You were created by him, for him, to know him. And it is in knowing him as he actually is, as he reveals himself in his word, that then goes on to create a great affection for God, a great love for God that can and will transform your life. And the knowledge of God that you most need to know, the knowledge of God that most stokes the fires of affection and lays a great foundation of assurance is the knowledge of how God saves. And that's what Calvinism is all about. He is sovereign in all things. He is sovereign in salvation. God saves his people. He saves me. That's Calvinism. It magnifies the glory and the grace of God. Um, and we seek to proclaim his greatness. We seek to make him big and known in that bigness. And we seek to most display that in how he comprehensively and completely saves his people. So do you know and delight in the glorious God of grace? Listen, I, I can't speak. This is too broad of a statement, and so I can't speak to it. But everyone, to, I think all struggles with assurance to some degree. And there's different various types, and we all have that struggle at some point. But so many of them, let me qualify a little bit, have something to do, I think, with a failure to understand the bigness of God and the comprehensiveness of his role in our salvation. It's not you. It's all him. 
It's not in your hands. It's in his. And that's my only hope, church. Right? Again, I, I know myself. I said last week, if there was 0.1% dependent upon me and left up to me, I would find a way to mess it up. And I would find a way to ruin it. My only hope is that it is 100% from beginning to middle to end all about God who holds us fast and who saves his people. So the doctrines of grace can be of a great help and comfort to you. Calvinism can help you. God is God. You are not. God saves. You do not. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's all we mean. So when we say that we are reformed, we mean first that we are Calvinists to the glory of God. All things are from him and through him and to him. And peek down at verse number 30, or verse 30. Let me at least pretend to try to look and point at the text. Um, we'll look at this in detail next week. Again, there John says it again. Here's John giving us good Calvinistic theology. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's Calvinism. Not man, but God. Not me, but him. And every other system necessarily sneaks something very subtly of man into the equation. Something of you and something that you must add or contribute into the salvation equation. And scripture, Paul, everything is clear that to try and add anything to what God has done is to then necessarily take away from what God has done. No. God is God. He gets all the glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Reformed means Calvinist. But... Number two, that's actually not all that we mean when we mean uh, when we use the word reformed. Let's be clear, though, uh, this is what some people mean with the word reformed. When many Baptists use the word reformed, they are using it synonymously with Calvinist. That's fine. I'm not going to quibble too much about that. They've got the main thing right. They've got the doctrines of grace. We can fellowship with them. We can work with them. That's good. But I want to be clear that I am not using the term reformed that way. You're not technically reformed if you just hold to the doctrines of grace, as glad as I am that you do. Because it means two more things. Second, to be reformed is to be covenantal. Right, you hear the word in there, covenant. Truly reformed theology is covenant theology. And we talked about this a lot in our series on Abraham from Genesis. You cannot understand the Bible without understanding the covenants of the Bible. Do you want to know the God who is life? Well, then you need to know him as the God of covenant. God, the creator, because of the great distance between he and us, the, the creator and the creature, he only then relates to us through covenant. Right? Creature connected to creator through covenant. When you think covenant, think communion. Think relationship. Covenants are the arrangements through which God relates to man. Which makes covenants very important then. Because God is life. I'm going to keep trying to bring it back. Why does this matter? Because God matters. So you should want to then understand how the God who is life relates to us. And it's through covenants. And so covenant theology can help us to know him better. It recognizes that the Bible is one unified whole, telling one grand narrative of the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. That's the Bible in, in like one sentence. The glory of God in the salvation of sinners through the sacrifice of the Son. And it's all built and structured around covenants. There are two main covenants. We don't have time to do this in detail. You know the one at the beginning, the covenant of works. God tells Adam, the first man, the representative man, obey me and live. And God is saying, I'm perfectly righteous. 
to be in relationship with me, you have to be perfectly righteous, keep my good law, be righteous, be right with me, and live. We know the story. Adam did not. He sinned, he fell, and we sinned, and we fell in him. And since God had warned, disobey me and die, we are all then born into this world spiritually dead. The basis of Jesus' teaching in John 3 is the covenant of works. The basis of him saying you must be born again is because of this covenant works. Because you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead because of the covenant of works. And this is really, really important. This was a profound realization for me years ago. I can't remember where I first read this. But do you know why every other religion and philosophy in the world basically teaches the same thing? Why everyone basically teaches, here are some of the rules that you must keep, here are some of the rituals that you must do, keep these things, keep this law, do these rituals, and you, you can be a good person. Why, do you know why everyone in one way or another is just basically trying to be a good person? It's because of the covenant of works. It's because we are all born by nature of being human into this covenant relationship with God. God says, I am righteous. Be righteous to be with me and live. And we all know that. Right? It's, it's wired deep within us. That's why every religion and philosophy has constructed some sort of system and an attempt to establish that goodness. Everyone is telling you what you must do to be good enough. You have this drive within you that you need to demonstrate yourself as a good person. You need to do these things or make these posts or live for this, whatever this thing is, you know, to demonstrate your, your goodness. Right? Why do we have this internal drive to demonstrate goodness? It's because of the covenant of works. Because we're stuck in it. Obey me and live, God says. Perfectly, by the way, obey me and live. You have not. He also then says, disobey me and die. You have. And so, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. That's the covenant of works. But God. But the God of all glory is also the God of all grace. There is a second covenant. The covenant of grace. Which is not about what we must do to establish our goodness. But it's entirely about what God has done for us in Christ to grant us His Goodness. This covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, is what we've been looking at in John 3. It's what we've just summarized in the doctrines of grace. You have to be righteous to be with God, who is righteous and who is life. You are not righteous. I am not righteous. We are dead. Therefore, we cannot do. We cannot establish our own righteousness. We cannot choose. We cannot do anything but God, but grace. He sent Jesus. Hold on, why didn't Jesus just show up and die? Why did he have to live 30-some years first? Why did he have to be sinless? Why did he have to submit himself to John's baptism for the repentance of sins, though he had no sins? Because of the covenant of works. Because it's still in effect. You are still under the covenant of works if you are not in Christ. We are still under the covenant of works. We have failed to keep it. The covenant of grace is Christ coming to keep the covenant of works for us in our place. Obey me and live. We didn't. Jesus came to perfectly obey and to fulfill the law for us. Disobey me and die. We did. 
Jesus came to sacrificially die and fulfill our penalty for breaking the law for us. Jesus keeps the covenant of works so that we can then be freely given the covenant of grace. What Jesus is doing makes no sense apart from the covenant of works. He is fulfilling it for us. Go read Romans 5. That's what Romans 5 is all about. We're all in Adam, covenant of works, trouble. Um, Here comes Christ, covenant of grace, fulfilling the first. This is covenant theology. And again, this is the the system that that magnifies the glory and the grace of God. God is not only the covenant-making God. He's the covenant-fulfilling and keeping and satisfying God. We failed. He does not. We broke the covenant. He made a new covenant in Christ for us to be restored to relationship with him. Everything that God does, everything that he does for us to save us, everything that he does through Christ is all through covenant. And so second, when we say that we are reformed, we say that we are covenantal. We understand God's word and the Bible and what God is doing through God's covenants. So Calvinistic, that means um, covenantal, and that means third and finally that to be reformed is to be confessional. Confessional. And all that means is that to be reformed is to ascribe to one of the historic confessions of faith that came out of the Reformation. That's why we're taking this time to explain this now. That's why we're teaching more and more from the 1689 and desire to lead Woodside to adopt this as our statement of faith. Why do that? Not because this is perfect. No statement of faith is perfect. Not because this is our ultimate authority. We've established already that sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone, is our ultimate and final authority. But we believe that the 1689 is a faithful and accurate summary of God's word. And it is Calvinistic. It gets the grace of God and salvation correct. It is covenantal. It gets God's gracious work through covenants correct. And it's historical. Church, right now, man, we need that more than ever. And so we're going to explain more and more of why we think this is a good move later. Uh, Time is kind of short, but for now, we simply want to do this because of the importance of knowing God. It's because of the importance of theology. As those things are minimized around us, so we want them emphasized. These historical, more comprehensive, complete statements of faith do just that. They reveal and magnify the greatness of the God who saves his people. And as rooted in history, man, they give us a solid foundation. Everything's going crazy and everything's moving and everything is changing and people aren't even having statements of faith anymore. Uh, chain, beliefs are changing. This is what Baptists have believed for over 330 years. We have been cut off from our historic Calvinist covenantal roots. And Baptist churches are just all over the place as a result. The original reformers reformed by going back. We want to reform by going back. We need to know what we believe. We need to be identified by what we believe, the glory and the grace of God. And this confession can help us do that. We're going to talk about this more as we go. But that's what I want to be clear on up front. This is what I mean when I use the term reformed. I mean that I am Calvinistic, I mean that I am covenantal, and I mean that I am confessional, and I believe and hope and pray that I believe those things all to the glory of God. And that I believe those things all because I think they are clearly revealed in 
Scripture. So that's what it means to be reformed. Second thing, and this will be brief, uh, we'll do some more on this one next week because baptism is still a part of the text next week. Uh, to be reformed also is to be long-winded and a poor manager of time. Um, so that's, that's a part of it. It's kidding. It's a joke. Wake up. Uh, second, uh, we're Baptists. Look again at the text. I got this idea to go on this little excursus as I was reading the text. Three times we see they were baptizing. Over in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll see that Jesus didn't do any baptizing. It was his apostles who were baptizing. Then in verse 23 of our chapter, we see that John was also baptizing. This is going to be kind of the setting for the conflict. And then we see that people were coming and being baptized. So we call ourselves Baptists, and not just parentheses Baptists, but we're Baptists. Why? What does that mean? Well, in the 16th and 17th centuries, the term was used to distinguish our forefathers from their Presbyterian brothers. Whom, let's be clear, they loved. We loved our Presbyterians so much that we stole their statement of faith. Like we thought they were so solid that what we did with this is we just kind of lifted it and stole the Westminster Confession of Faith and slightly tweaked it on a couple of spots where they got it wrong. Um, but no, so our, our Baptist brothers loved their Presbyterian brothers. We love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I owe much of my theological understanding uh, to Presbyterian brothers. Um, I was first a member of, of, of a Presbyterian church as an adult. I happily put my Presbyterian brother-in-law in this pulpit. Um, again, because they get the main thing right. They get God right. They get the God of glory right. They get the doctrines of grace right. So, amen. We love them, and we are thankful for them. But we do disagree with them on this. We think that they're wrong on this. They think that we're wrong on this, right? So, again, we all think that we're, each other are wrong. That's, that's fine. We disagree primarily on the subjects and on the mode of baptism. Subjects and mode of baptism. And we're not going to do it in detail now because we just don't have time. But I believe that the New Testament is about as clear as it could be. Baptism is for believers. That's what we believe as Baptists. We're sometimes called credo-baptists. And credo is just Latin for believe. Believers, baptism. We believe that baptism is for those who have been born again by the grace of God and who have then demonstrated that uh, by following obediently in repentance and faith. Baptism always follows regeneration and faith. In the New Testament, just every single time. There's not a, I saw a meme, I was looking at things, I saw a meme. It was, it was a guy holding up a Bible, and it was like, New Testament references supporting infant baptism, and it was just two blank pages, right? Because there just, just aren't any. Um, it's just not in the New Testament, um, the idea that, that baptism should be administered to babies. It's not there. And so, when our Presbyterian brothers say that we should baptize babies because babies were circumcised in the Abrahamic covenant, again, we, we humbly disagree, right? Because we're not in the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is not the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we're in the covenant of grace, uh, the new covenant. And so we differ on the subjects of baptism, and we also differ on the mode. Uh, we are, we're dunkers. Uh, we are immersers. Why? Because well, it's, it's just simply what the Greek word means, right? To immerse, uh, baptizo is what the word means. And it also seems to be that that's what we see going on in our text and elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, my older, literary-minded sister gave me a brilliant book on writing for my birthday. It was one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. If you want to read about writing in Russian literature, go read it. Um, but he's laying out about writing. What's a story made of? At its most basic, a story has three parts. Setting, character, and plot. Uh, setting doesn't get as much love. But verses 22 through 24 in our text are setting 
verses. These are the setting that are going to lay some important uh, framework for what we're going to look at um, next week. And setting is never unimportant. As the book says, nothing can happen nowhere. Right? I like that. Nothing can happen nowhere. This scene is happening in a particular somewhere. And there are important aspects of this setting that can better help us understand what follows and that can better help us understand baptism. Look at what is highlighted about the setting in verse 23. This just seems completely random. Why was John baptizing where he was baptizing? Because water was plentiful there. That seems to imply that there was more going on here than sprinkling a little bit of water. I was tempted to like just dump out a little bit here. Look, like you don't need plentiful water just to to sprinkle a little bit of water. No, it it, it seems that there's... uh, a river, uh, there's somewhere to be. There's dunking, there's going under, there's coming up out of the water. And so we're going to look at this more next week. But when we say that we are Baptist, at minimum, we mean that baptism is reserved for believers and that we baptize those believers by immersion. And third, as Baptists, because of the proper subjects and the proper mode, that means that we also emphasize meaningful church membership or we emphasize regenerate church membership. Only those who have been born again, only those who have followed Christ obediently in baptism have a right to membership in Christ's church. And this is why, as some of you have noticed, we've started to talk more about the importance of baptism and the importance of membership when it comes to the Lord's table. It's because we are covenantal in our theology, because we believe that God is covenantal. There's a brilliant and beautiful continuity. It's all tied together. God doesn't just love us. He loves us covenantally. What God does, he doesn't just say, like, I love everybody so much. I hope some of you will come to me. No, he loves us covenantally. And in doing so, we've seen that that means that he, he binds himself to us. Covenant is commitment. God commits himself to us. I am yours, you are mine. Right? That's the covenant uh, kind of principle. And because God loves us covenantally, and Christ commands us in John 13, 34, to love one another as he has loved us, we are commanded to love each other like he has loved us. We love because he first loved us. We love like he first loved us. And God loved us covenantally. Therefore, we believe that we are called and commanded to love one another covenantally. That's just what church membership is. It is an intimate binding together of brothers and sisters in Christ. What we're doing in church membership is saying, I am yours and you are mine. I am bound to you and you are bound to me. I am committed to you to seek your good and you are committed to me to do the same thing. Christian love is covenantal love. And as we've seen, baptism and the Lord's Supper are covenant ordinances. That's why we must increasingly understand them in light of the wonderful privilege and responsibility of church membership. So we're we're working uh, to be more clear on that. We're working to be more biblical. We are working to treat these wonderful gifts as God has given to us. Covenant fellowship, um, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These things are wonderful gifts that I don't think we fully understand and appreciate. And so we want to reform that. We want to correct that. And we want to elevate them to the proper place where they belong. Again, ultimately, main thing, main idea this morning is that we've got to 
and we seek to get these things right because God is the most important thing. What our hope is, what we're trying to do, is that all of this, we believe, is about better knowing him and then also about better representing him because that's why we're here. God is a spirit. The world cannot see God, but it can see us. It can see his church. And therefore, church, we should take very seriously how we are representing him and what we are reflecting and revealing about him. Church, this is why the Lord's Supper is so important. Everyone who takes the Lord's Supper, we are implicitly saying, hey, yeah, these people represent the Lord. We need to be very, very careful about doing that. This is why the church membership connection and the baptism connection are so, so important. We're here to reflect and reveal God. That's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We talk a lot about that language in certain conversations, but I think we miss the main thing. We're created in his image and likeness to reflect and to reveal him, to serve him, to exist um, for that specific purpose. And and one of the ways that we do that is by seeking to the best of our ability, uh, humbly, to get our theology right, by getting uh, the practice of church ordinances right. Listen, by doing none of this in a spirit of pride or arrogance. I know that just, just by taking a position and saying it's the correct position, there will be accusations of, oh, you're just you're proud and arrogant. Um, no, that's, that's, we, we cannot do that. We cannot say, oh, we figured this out. We're better than you. You're wrong. Um, no, we should be doing this in a spirit of total humility. Calvinists should be the most humble people in the world because we understand, not, no, not me, not me at all, him completely. We understand that all is everything and entirely grace. And so we don't want to emphasize this just to win an argument. I don't want to emphasize this just to be right and to bludgeon you into agreeing with No, I, I, we want to emphasize this because we have experienced the life-saving and life-changing grace of God. Because we have tasted and seen that he is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Because we honestly believe that Jesus is correct when he says that knowing God is eternal life. That starts with knowing about him. That starts with thinking rightly and deeply about him. Do you ever think rightly and deeply about God and about the things of God? Uh, Henry, oh man, what did you say, Henry? Henry said something like, you can't, you can't fake true joy or you can't fake spontaneous joy or you can't fake spontaneous joy in the Lord either. Right? Do you find this joy and this delight and is there a desire to think deeply about the one who is life itself, who made you, Um, and who um, saved you entirely. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. See, our desire is that you would know this God and delight in this God and rest in this God. And we honestly and hopefully humbly believe that, that solid, clear, reformed Baptist theology can help you to do that. So there's much more that can and needs to be said. But let's start with that and let's stop with that. Corporate identity, right? Who are we? Well, that matters. Reform Baptist. Why? Because of the glory and grace of God. We want to be all about him. We want to be for him. We want everything that we do to be about magnifying and glorifying the God of all grace.
And so hopefully, this will be a small step to kindly uh, clarify that. That might have felt more like a lecture than a sermon. So we did it one time. We'll be back in the text next week. Um, I hope for many questions, I hope for many discussions, as we seek to embody another important principle of the Reformation. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. Not in the sense of progressing forward to something new, but reforming backwards, always seeking to make sure as well as we can that we are as aligned with God's word as we possibly can be. Going back to our historical roots, ultimately going back to the scripture alone as our ultimate and final authority. Again, because church, the scriptures are so wonderful. They're so living and active. I pray that you can find joy in reading God's Word. We're not like, hey, you got to read God's word. This is this drudgery, miserable thing. That, you, know, you just got to suck it up and do it. And take your vitamins. No, we're like, like, this is life. This is where God is. This is how He communes with us and reveals Himself to us. Now, if you haven't just spent time in the Psalms, I mean, comforted and encouraged by the goodness and the kindness and the presence of the Lord, then open up and read and feast. Jesus says we live on these words. And so those are the words that we want to go back to and that we emphasize because they reveal to us the God in whose presence is fullness of joy. So our goal must be to corporately know him better and proclaim him better. And that starts with being clear on who we are. We are Reformed, we are Baptists, and we are those things, we want to be those things only to the glory of God. So if you would bow with me, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray now that you would help uh, the preached word. pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. I pray that your will would now be accomplished. I pray that we would desire uh, to be more like you and that you would use your word to make us more like you. Father, we want to know you better. Father, I believe that your scripture is very clear that you are the God of all glory and that you are the God of all grace. We want to know you as you reveal yourself to us. And so we thank you um, that you are sovereign over all. We thank you that you sovereignly save us, uh, your people, because I know that that is my only hope. And I know that our only hope as a church in life and health and growth is you. It's Christ who has promised uh, to build his church. It is Christ who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so we want to cling to him. And we want to do everything that we can to align ourselves with what Jesus Christ has revealed to us uh, about you. Lord, and about how we can know you and about how what you have done to save us from our sins. Um, so, Father, give us wisdom. Father, give us humility. Um, protect us from pride. I pray that our desire would always be um, to magnify your glory. Our desire always would be to point not to ourselves, um, but to you. I pray that you would give us great delight in your grace, Lord. I pray that as we leave here at minimum, that we would go encouraged, um, that you are gracious and that you are good and that you comprehensively and completely save your people. Father, that's where we find our assurance, and that's where we find our hope, in you, uh, the God who saves and the God who holds us fast. Um, so, Father, continue to shape and reform and transform us. Um, continue to make us a church that reflects and reveals uh, who you are to the watching world. And we ask and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, why don't you rise, and let's close with our final song.